man, like it's common knowledge that this village has a dragon problem and we got all these dragons and it really sucks. Oh yeah, our dragon problem. We have a dungeon problem too. <laughs> We'd like to put the dragons in the dungeons, ideally. <laughs> exactly, in a perfect world. Hello and welcome to our Riverdale podcast brought to you by the Aficionados Podcast Network. My name is Robin Jeffrey. I'm a 23-year-old actor and filmmaker. I like rooting anti-heroes and feminist agendas and I have way too much knowledge regarding details that no one else remembers. I run at the 100 script on Twitter. You can follow me personally at Robin E. Jeffrey pretty much everywhere. And my name is Brittany Ray. I am a 29-year-old journalist from beautiful post-apocalyptic Vancouver, B.C., I like badass moms and long naps. I'm on Twitter at Abertania, where I can be found attempting journalism and talking about my cat. Today we have more to say about the first half of season three of Riverdale. Do you want to do it one more time? No, I'm happy with that take. Okay. Um, and <laughs> today, since it's a round table, and a round table um, can't just be two people because then the table is not round. I mean, it could be round. I guess that's true. Yeah. We have two guests. Yay! Uh, um... Uh, um, 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 returning member of the aficionados, Sam is here. Who are you? Hi, my name is Samantha Coley. I'm a 26-year-old writer in sunny pre-apocalyptic Washington, D.C. I'm a senior writer and social media specialist at Telltale TV. I like over 40s OTPs and making playlists. I'm on Twitter at SamKCC, where you can find me yelling about television and fangirling middle-aged actresses. Yay! And we also have... Claire! Hi, my name is Claire Willett. I'm a 37-year-old writer from Portland, Oregon. I like trash, multi-shipping, and Catholic redemption arcs, and I'm the author of a sci-fi trilogy called The Rewind Files. You can find me on Twitter at, at Claire Willett, screaming about the president, or at, at Kane and Griffin, where I live-tweet everything, and I currently have a horrible cold, so I am rocking a sexy Betty Davis voice situation right now. For which I apologize in advance. I love that for you. Bold of you to call it sexy. <laughs> um, so, Claire, we have had you on our last podcast. Yes. Have you been? You haven't been on the 100 podcast because you've been I on have the not. podcast. Yes. But <laughs> this is the first time that we are seeing you here at the Riverdale podcast. Well, t- technically, let's. Let's not let's not skip past my guest starring role on the Riverdale podcast when I snored through it last season when oh. I was sleeping at your house. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Black right. Jungle. That was really my introduction to the Riverdale podcast. Episode 210, I believe it was. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And she's also contributed via Twitter thread mm. oh, that right. we have read out. Right, exactly. Yes. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> but um we haven't had you on the podcast, so would you tell us a little bit about your relationship slash experience uh, with Riverdale? Oh, this is gonna be good. Sure. Um, so I, um, I started watching it very, very recently. I think I, I binged all of season one and season two, um, mostly with you guys, um, over the, I think summer and fall leading up to the premiere of season three. So I got caught up on the first two seasons, like just sort of right as the new season was starting and, uh, was extremely surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I, um, I tend to be somebody who doesn't really like shows about teenagers that often, but fair. I was. Oh, I have news for you about the hundred. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah, that's fair. Um, but I <laughs> I do like shows about teenagers when there are hot parents for me to emotionally attach myself to. So I basically mm-hmm. got into yeah. this show via Snake Parents because there's so much overlap with our sort of segment of the like teen adults cabbie fandom in the hundred and everybody that I knew pretty much 
who watches 100 and likes Cabbie, like huge percentage of them also were watching this show and they were like, there's a great parentship. And I, as a person born in the 80s who came of age in the 90s, really appreciate that almost all of the actors now playing parents on this show are people who were like teen heartthrobs during like my teen heartthrob days. Right. Luke Perry and Mitchum Amick and um, Molly Ringwald and Gina Gershon, um, my like ultimate lesbian awakening. So, um, so I like that. The show itself is, I find, sort of really entertainingly bonkers. <laughs> That's a great That's way to describe way to it. it. Bonkers. And I and I enjoy one of the things that I, I really love about the way you guys cover it is like is a perfect mix of of like giving it exactly as much substantial analysis as it deserves and no more and also acknowledging the ways <laughs> that it's ridiculous but uh yeah so so that's kind of it i basically like my my main investment is in the parents and in the gays which is kind of how i watch almost all television um but i'm mm-hmm. enormously enjoying uh season 3 so far that actually goes right into the first question that i kind of wanted to bring up was how are you guys enjoying season three so far <laughs> I, liked it. I i love it but also i mean like it's like it's insane it's so when i try to explain to people like oh the plot of season three of riverdale is like what if a demon like psychotropic <laughs> rpg was running all of our lives it's like like it it, it sounds really stupid um yeah. and, and it it kind of is stupid, but I'm also like it's but in a really entertaining way. Yeah. With potential for it could pay off in a way that could actually be like smart and surprising and interesting. Right. Sam, how, how do you feel about the season so far? The season so far is my favorite season so far. Mm-hmm. It is utterly and completely ridiculous and it makes barely any sense, but I am having a great time watching it make no sense and uh, trying to make sense of it while also not caring if it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah it's right. so fun to watch. And, like, I love things that are, like, it's all connected and, like, it's all part of some scheme and it's it's just really neat. And I like the way that they're weaving in the parents' backstory mm-hmm. and making it part of yeah. the chaos that's happening now. Yeah. So that's really cool. What are you about you, Brittany? <laughs> I love this show because, like, I love to make fun of it, but no one else is allowed to make fun of it. Mm. Like, if someone who doesn't watch Riverdale makes fun of Riverdale, I'm like, how dare you? Yeah. Like, you don't watch this, like, insane show. You don't get to have an opinion. Yeah, if somebody else who does watch the show thinks it's stupid, I'm like, right? Yeah. But if someone who doesn't watch the show thinks it's stupid, I'm like, excuse you very much. Because it's not stupid. It knows exactly what it is now. Mm. Like, they make, you can tell the writer's room are having a great time writing this season because they're just like what insane thing can we do next? Yeah. And we're just sitting there like, oh my God, I don't know either. Let's, let's, let's have a good time finding out. Yeah. Um, I also love it so far. Um, I would say that I'm also probably enjoy this season the most as well, because um, at around this time, well, at around this time last year, I was fully just being like, hello, snake parents has just happened. Things are important. Mm-hmm. But um, at the beginning of season two, it was like, okay, so, you know, so we're watching it again. Because, you know, I wasn't that big of a fan of season one, to be honest. And uh, so we were watching it again. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And this is when it started, like, really picking up. Yeah. Um, it started getting fun. Yeah. And then this season at the very beginning i'm already like i'm already in yeah so it's like it's the most fun and i think that um the episode the midnight club brought it up oh. to a whole nother level yeah and i'm a big- i i think that i think the midnight club is i would say the the first really like genuinely great top to bottom 
episode of this show, like where the whole thing was yeah, firing on yeah. all cylinders. And and I and I suspect however long this show runs, it will remain like you know in the in the top tier of episodes because what it did was so interesting and unique. And I think like going back to what Sam was saying, like um, one of the things that I'm really enjoying about this show is that, or about this season of the show is that um, it's found a way to make the adults incredibly important in and of themselves, not just as like parents of teen protagonists who are looped into storylines involving the teen protagonists, which is a lot of what season one and season two, like when they came into it, it was usually like you're, you know, Fred's in this storyline because it's something that's related to Archie, you know, Um, or Hermione's in this story because. Wait, well, I mean, that's still part of Fred. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fred hasn't gotten to do anything Um, this year. I have I have some Fred thoughts that will amuse you when we get to my D and D tutorial, but uh, but anyway, so uh, but so I think what I like about this season is that the the adults are are important kind of collectively as like a generation and as the individuals that they were when they were teenagers in a mm-hmm. way that I think um, is actually kind of unique for for a, a, a teen show to give them a role that is largely unrelated to them being parents, except sort of insofar as they're like, you know, we know from our own experience that this game is really dangerous and f***ed up and we want to like protect our kids from it. But that's not their primary like engagement in the storyline. So I think that's really cool. And I, I think that also helps kind of expand out like, like the mythology of the town of Riverdale is also getting some more interesting and kind of complicated uh, like backstory in this season that it didn't get the first couple of seasons. I feel like I actually liked season one, although I think it was very much like sure. Twin Peaks Junior. So it was very much mapping yeah. a lot of the beats of Twin Peaks. It starts with a dead body and who killed this teenager. And you're kind of digging through. And yeah, it didn't feel like its own show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like everyone's secrets in this small town are coming out as you're investigating this murder, even though the ones that aren't necessarily related to the murder, but they kind of come out anyway and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it ends with the reveal of who killed this person. And then spoiler, it's uh, the parent, you know, so so it's very much like Claire, if you like the first season of Twin Peaks, you would like the first season of Riverdale because it's structurally doing a lot of the same things. And I think that they try to dial it up in season two, which I which I think probably is my least favorite season so far. Like they try to sort of take that and then kind of like amp up the urgency with like, no, there's more murders. There's like a bunch of murders. And I was kind of like, I mean, like, okay, but this is like, this season is crazy. And I keep wondering if they're building towards some kind of overlap with Sabrina. Oh, please. Right. Please. And it's going to actually turn out to be genuinely supernatural in some way or if it's sort of, or like what kind of what the reveal is, is going to be, but this feels like they actually have like, it's its own thing now. It's not just like Twin Peaks Jr. You know, like it's its own really specific wacko show. I have a few more questions, but before then I went on Twitter and I just like asked if anybody had anything that they thought was really important for us to talk about. Here we go. <laughs> um, so um, Miss Marvelous on Twitter wants to know how much Brittany likes snakes. Okay, here's the thing. Okay. okay. <laughs> so she has this amazing website, which is called Featherstone Designs. You should Google it. She was all over Unity Days. Like the whole cast is wearing her merch now. And she messaged me because I helped her with some of the logos for different characters. And she said, she said, I'm doing Riverdale stuff. What logo should I use for people? <laughs> I just said, oh, I got it. Snakes for everyone. Boom, done. I yeah. helped. And she was like, 
That didn't help at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my answer is that I like sneaks a lot and I would like merchandise with a lot of sneaks on it. Okay. You see, you see, the thing is, the thing about Riverdale is now all our favorite characters are serpents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. then also Archie, inexplicably. Yeah, Archie. Yeah, but he's a fake serpent. He's just there. He didn't put any of the work in. That's yeah, true. he has not earned um, it. Uh, another one that we had was our friend King's Token, who likes to write into us, and we appreciate them very much. Um, asks about Hermione. So they say uh, the weird characterization of Hermione. Are we supposed to feel sorry for her? Are we supposed to hate her? Season three and season one, Hermione don't even feel like the same person. Yes, she's in an abusive relationship, but they are not really giving us her story or point of view. So, what do you guys think about Hermione this season? Oh, great question. I have no clue. Mm. It's like when Cheryl's personality changes episode to episode and then Betty's personality changes episode to episode. And you're like, who's Hermione going to be this time? She's going to be like the supportive, all-knowing parent who like actually understands that she's in an abusive relationship? Or is she kind of going to be garbage? Mm. Now, I I would argue my sort of slight counterpoint to, to King's Token is I feel like potentially I would say... To me, it feels like the actual outlier is season two, Hermione. Like, I feel like, I feel like yes. you could kind of, like, it's a little bit messy, but I feel like you could draw a line between the Hermione that we first meet, who, who comes across like somebody who is very scared of Hiram, is in over her head because of things that Hiram has done, and is kind of just trying to cope and keep her daughter safe, but is also like sort of sucked into Hiram's fed up world. And then, the the current Hermione that we get. We've had these little kind of touchstone moments where we see her like trying to communicate to Hermione, like I'm I'm trapped here, like I can't leave, but like I don't like I don't want that for you. But season two, the the one like the part that throws me is the scene where Archie like goes like goes for a drive with the driver and they're like I we're going to take you to the big boss and it's Hermione and it's like okay so was I meant to understand from that that all along actually like she was the mastermind and Hiram was not like it, it was this bizarre it gave her so much how much better would that have been like oh I would I would really have enjoyed that but like um but then it was never that was never readdressed again so it was like this sort of yeah teasing towards the possibility that Hermione actually has like a ton of agency in this criminal empire which sort of contradicts the idea that Hermione is sort of doing the best she can to keep her head above water and keep her daughter safe married to this like sociopath who who keeps kind of like sucking her in. So, so that, so to me, it's season two Hermione where it's like, she's like, she's like large and in charge. She's like running the criminal empire and she's like in it with him. And she's telling Hermione things like, Oh, we use our like feminine wiles to like seduce information out of men, like super, like consciously. That line where she's talking about like being a mall. I wanted to throw things. Yeah. But like, so that's like, to me, like that's outlier Hermione. That's the Hermione that makes no sense because that Hermione is like doing this intentionally. It's like, I have chosen this life. I am in it. I'm training you to be in it. This is what like moles and like gangster girls do. And, and so, whereas I feel like one in three, you're sort of like, she's making the best of a situation that she doesn't actually want to be in. But the whole thing is kind right. of a mess and I want, and I like her. Like I want, I want to be, whether she ends up being like more good or more evil or somewhere in the middle, like I want to be engaged in what's going on with her. And I really liked flashback Hermione. Like I like that little mm-hmm. like glimpse of 
getting to understand how she became who she became. But I'm like, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to think of her right now. Is she doing this on purpose or not? I feel like with season three, they are trying really hard to include the parents more in the plot line. But then they're also cutting stuff that I think is extremely important. So like they're just leaving out things that you expected to go more places for the sake of like the kids plot and the G and G plot and things like that. So like they put in that line at the beginning of season three about Hermione being aware that she's in an abusive relationship and wanting to get out of it, but not being able to. And then it hasn't gone anywhere. And I'm like, where's the follow up to this? Like, is this coming later? Like, is she going to like, I I need them to follow through with that for me to be sympathetic for Hermione in the way that I want to be because I really enjoyed her character in season one. And I agree with Claire. Her season two is the, the place where it seems like she's a completely different person from the start and the, and where we are now. Well, I think in season two, the writers just didn't know what they were going to do yet. Well, what they did with the part in which like Andre like drives Archie to the thing. And it seems like it's all like been Hermione the whole time. It was used as a cliffhanger or like a twist for one episode. And then it's like, never like yeah. you said, it was never addressed again. Yeah. Cause I don't think the writers could decide like what they wanted to do. Like, did they want to make her the big bad or did they want to make her like a victim and explore that? And I think like, once they had the audience reception and critical reception of Hermione's story, they went to season three and they went, okay, what are we going to do with Hermione? And then it's clear that it's just, the victim. it's just Hiram again, because then Hiram's the one who's like, Papa Poutine's here, come to the diner and we'll all be gangster guys. Like, it's all Hiram and none of it's, you know, even Hiram, like, brings Archie into his study and, br- and Hermione's, like, drinking wine and she's like... Stuff sucks. Like, stuff that sucks. was her entire, like, thing for season two. Yeah. Drinks wine, says, yeah, that sucks. I mean, and she's the mayor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, cool. Okay, question for all of you. Very important. At this time, while watching halfway through, halfway, like, um, at the point in which we are at season three, who is the Gargoyle King? Claire, who's the Gargoyle King? <gasps> oh. Okay, so, so the, the short answer is, I, uh, the short answer is that I don't know. I, so here, so here's, here's where I'm at with that question. The, the most obvious guess, obviously, is um, to me is that it's Edgar Evernever and that the game is tied in with mm. the cult. But that's so obvious, and so many people have like pointed that out from the beginning that I feel like if it if it turns out that that actually is true, it's going to feel like so lazy and and so like like yeah. it, that was like. That's how we felt about Hal, too. You're like, yeah, well, well, at least with Hal, it was like they introduced a couple different options sort of of who it could be at varying different points that were plausible. That's true. Yeah. You guys were like ride or die for it being Sheriff Keller, I remember, for a couple episodes, (laughs) as I I recall. Um, Oh, man. Oops. I stand by that we could have nailed no, that one. Oh, well, yeah. No, totally. the, the evidence it was so there. No, that's the thing. Like, the jackets? The yeah. matching jackets? Mm-hmm. No, like, that's the thing. Like, there were... I had that nailed, and then it turned out that it was just lazy. There were, like, yeah. plausible alternatives for who the Black Hood could be. And there yeah. was lots of different options for who could have killed Charles' brother. So so with this, it's, like, like the, the fact that from, like, the first episode of the season, there's, like, there's this weird farm cult, and it's making Alice act strange, and they have mind control powers, and it's somehow connected to all that. Like, it feels like, well, that seems like a really obvious, like, you know, that's probably who it's going to be then. So so I feel like either it is, and I'm going to be like, wow, you put in no effort. Or if it isn't, 
then I'm waiting on there being any other reason for this farm storyline other than just to make Alice act like some version of Alice that's really hard to sympathize with. So that's, mm-hmm. so, so the, my, my, I guess so the short answer is I don't know. I sort of think it's probably going to be Edgar, but I hope it's not because I feel like that would be really lazy, but I don't necessarily have a better option. Brittany, who's the gargoyle king? I actually have the same answer, which mm-hmm. is that I think it's Edgar because it's so obvious. Yeah. Cause like, with this show, they're gonna they're gonna shove the answer in your face and then be like, "Oh, that's not it." And then ten episodes later, in one random twist, that'll be it. Yeah. And like, given this show's history, I think that's the correct answer. The only thing that gives me pause is that we have yet to see Edgar's face. So then, of course, the backup is then what? Sam does not agree. Keep going. Oh, the backup is then Hiram. Right. Because he had... <laughs> me and Sam were like, yeah. Yeah. Like, is you get there and you're like, well, are you talking to a man in a gargoyle suit or are you talking to your own gargoyle suit? Yeah. Depends on how stupid they want to go. And for the record, if they make it really stupid, I will not be mad. Mm. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with stupid. Mm. Sam, you think it's Hiram? Absolutely. Okay. Why? Um, it seems very laid out. Like, the way you guys think it seems obvious that it's Edgar makes... I feel that it seems obvious that it's Hiram. Which, that's fair. Which that's makes totally sense fair. to me in in the way that Hal made sense in season two for mm. being the Black Hood. Because, like, it feels, like, almost too clear that it's him now, like they did with the Nancy Drew book in season two. Oh, and yeah. I was like, it's him! It's him! And then they were like, no, it's not. And then I was like, mm. Yeah. But isn't it? <laughs> right. So you're saying that because they gave us, like, it's Hal halfway through season two, and then it was Hal, you're saying since they're giving us, it's Hiram, that it'll probably be Hiram. It'll, they'll take it away from Hiram, and then they'll bring it back to Hiram? See, that's yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm feeling. Yeah. And Hiram is a character who's been, like, he wasn't on season one, but he, ex- like, yeah. existed oh, yeah. during he was season full- one. He was very present in season one, for sure. Yeah. Like, if they make it Edgar, it's just lazy. But if they make it Hiram, it's like... I saw it coming, but also I enjoyed it. Yeah, I... Here's the thing, is that um, there were, like, three bad dads. Um, <laughs> and one twin. And one twin. Clifford, who ended up being the big bad in season one. Hal, who ended up being the big bad in season two. Hiram's the only bad dad left, you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> to make it a little bit different, uh, one thing that I really loved about a, a really wonderful theory that I thought Brittany had last year was about how the Black Hood was a network instead oh, of being yeah. just one person. I was in love with that theory. So I'm, like, really annoyed it didn't pan out. Right? That would have been better. So, better. so I wonder if they fully just listened to our podcast and took our idea. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm also fine with. Um, but I wonder if if I could make that my theory, that Do potentially it. it's partly Hiram, and maybe he is looking at his own gargoyle suit, but he's not always the person inside it. Maybe right. he has more than one person being the gargoyle. You know, that is fair enough because I feel like Hiram wouldn't wear that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He never do. Hiram no. doesn't do his own dirty he's work. Such a prick. Well, yeah. How did it get in there? You know. I also i I like that theory because I, as I was watching, like, and I haven't, I haven't gone back and rewatched any of it, but I was trying to kind of loosely keep track of like. The, like the appearances of the actual like that like when we see when we see the gargoyle king like who who in real life sees him like how like 
where he appears, how plausible it would be, who could get in and out of that location, how close together those things are. Like, like it seems like it might be, it might make more sense if there were like multiple people and even maybe multiple gargoyle suits because then like, because sometimes it does feel like, mm-hmm. like not quite that he's in t- the same place like two different places at the same time, but like sometimes it has a little bit of a vibe of that. Do you want right. to hear my crazy theory? Like my like dark horse, I'm probably wrong, but I would be like totally psyched if I was right. Weirdo theory for who it could be. Oh, what of is course. It? Um, yes. What is Penelope? Oh, <gasps> okay. tell me more. Into Say it. more so, words right now. So first of all, speaking of like, like, you know, it's going to be yes. a shitty parent. So we know, we know that it has to be, or that it is most likely to be somebody from the parent generation because whoever killed the janitor in the midnight club, like it is all signs mm. point to probably the same person, right? Or connected that death versus these deaths. Mm-hmm. So that makes it seem like that sort of points towards like looking more closely at the parents in that original group, as opposed to the parents in the satellite group that Hiram and Daryl Doyle and everyone were playing in that we didn't get to see that much. Penelope also grew up with the sisters. Right, right, right. So she's the most likely of the parents to have had exposure to the game as it was sort of originally conceived as like this kind of therapeutic mind control thing that the kids in the comic came up with because of the like the gargoyle statue in like the punishment room you know like like what we learned Penelope's also the one who was like what this is how Daryl Doily died I don't know and she was the game master so like we kind of only have her wor- yeah okay but what's her motive well so um great question I'm sure it's something to do with maple syrup but I <laughs> uh, but like but so yeah I I don't I mean I don't know I I expect we might find out more about that as we go but we know like first of all like we know she's killed people before like we know she doesn't like you know like have any squeamishness yeah. about she pushed that. Nana Rose down the stairs oh, yeah, yeah. Like, who'd she kill oh she, she tried like, to kill Nana Rose and, and didn't I mean like and the suicide like like dad blossom suicide yeah. was like pretty much not a suicide right like we're all kind of like wasn't it sort of oh yeah that's right what there was there's always sort of like been a theory that like dad blossom didn't actually kill himself and that it was Penelope, yeah Penelope who hung yeah it. I which I totally buy oh yeah I've heard that before so so I think she has I certainly think she has the capacity for it but I also think that like I think she's the most likely person like so like when the sisters are talking about like how the like how the game was invented it was sort of like like created by like by the kids who lived in that in in the convent sort of like for and among themselves and it wasn't necessarily designed to like you know get out there and spread into the wide world so there are there are only a finite number of characters who had like who both came up in that system and then achieved sort of a like you know status out in the world of Riverdale where they could have been the mechanism through which that game spread and she's sneaky and this theory is good so I don't know I mean I I think um, and I could also see her like, you know, she enjoys scaring people, you know, like she enjoys being so creepy, true um, mm-hmm. in a way that like, like he's like Hiram does his own dirty work. Like I could see Penelope putting on that thing and going to like scare Ethel and then like getting a kick out of it because she's got a little bit of sadist in her. And, and in terms of the why, you know, I don't know. I don't know why I feel like there's going to end up being some like all this sort of 
power broker connections that make Hiram feel like, like what Sam was saying, like what makes Hiram a really compelling candidate is like, he really is operating in real time. Like the game master, he's pulling all of these strings. He's like closing all these land deals. He's got everybody in his pocket. So it feels like if it isn't Hiram, somebody else in his kind of cohort who stands to benefit in the same way, but is kind of like using Hiram by letting Hiram think that he's sort of the person in charge um, feels also potentially plausible. So I don't know. I mean, like I, I have no basis for this other than just she's from the convent and she has sort of a similar personality type and she was the game master. And we only have her word for it that she doesn't know how those goblets ended up in the bathroom or whatever, you know? Right. So, yeah. So I don't know. She also, yeah. Part of it being, we know the game originated at the convent Mm -hmm. too. And she also, she said, was she not, and maybe I'm wrong and I am misremembering, but was she not one of the people who was like going to get rid of one of the manuals? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, she she was. Sweetwater River. Oh yeah. She was supposed to throw it in Sweetwater River. And you know what wound up in Sweetwater River? Jason. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I love this theory I still now. need to make that Okay, great. Sense. So, um, uh, unfortunately, Sam can't stay with us the whole time. We have one more. You can stay with us the whole time now? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway. Sorry. Um, Carry on. So, one more question before we go into Claire's dissertation on uh, G&G. Because um, <laughs> it really is a dissertation. One of the main reasons that we are all here watching this show What's the future for snake parents? How will Gladys factor into this? Oh. Sam, you go first. Oh, God. <laughs> do, do you need someone else to go first while you formulate thoughts? A little bit. Brittany, go first. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's the thing. I think that there's going to have to be a huge fallout between FP and Alice because things are going just a little too well. And there was this sort of a line that made me a little uncomfortable when they were having their love scene that wasn't a love scene where he said her being at the farm kind of opened her up to the possibility of yeah. them. And something yeah. about that didn't quite hit. She's like, being like brainwashed. Yeah. yeah. I don't like it. So it's like, I hate it, she, it kind of implies that she hasn't come to him like of her own volition. It's sort of been like, she's been encouraged to do these things, but she's not quite Alice. Mm-hmm. So I think there has to be some kind of fallout where Alice has to snap out of her farm persona. And I think obviously that's kind of the point of having like Gina Gershon on and mm-hmm. just sort of, giving throwing some tension into the fp and alice relationship because there's no tension right now like things are okay with them yeah and making it more dramatically interesting and so there'll be the sort of push and pull of well does he choose alice or does he choose i have forgotten jacket's name gladys <laughs> i like looked at it, i was like what the hell i like the only thing in my head was jelly bean uh, <laughs> no, no 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 this nope. is the thing is like you have to have a weird name for me to remember it mm. gladys isn't weird enough for you no, and you know what's really embarrassing is Gladys is the name of my great-grandmother, so I really should have remembered that. Well, in your defense, Oops, Gina Gershon sorry, does not look like a Gladys. No, True, to me, you real. look at her and you're like, that's Gina Gershon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, what we do have to remember is in the end of the last episode, and obviously we're going to get a new episode in a few days here, and I'm very excited about it. Finally. Um, But at the end of the most recent episode, Riverdale's on quarantine. Yeah. FP and Jughead fully aren't in Riverdale. How are they going to get back in, you know? I I fully think they're just going to skip right past that whole plot line and just be like, oh, JK, that was a cliffhanger, but everyone's back in Riverdale. I bet, gonna be you a- know what? I bet they will. <laughs> I feel be- like they're going to do that too, and it drives me bananas, yeah. because I'm just like, <laughs> why am I not going to get any, like, 
effort for them to get back to each other. What? Yeah. You have I love it. rich opportunity for plot here that you set up yourselves and you're just going to throw it away. I love when Riverdale walks past those opportunities. It makes me laugh. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know what? That's what fan fiction's for. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, I want them to go do something equally insane now. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, the whole town's in lockdown? JK. Like, oh, a 16-year-old owns a speakeasy? Why not? Who cares? Oh, who cares? Like, guys, guys, uh, it's mocktails only. She's not in the business of corrupting my Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You're right. But hey, casino, who cares? Yeah, r- yeah. ran an illegal casino. Somehow ca- conned a guy. Yeah, you do have to be 18 to gamble, so it's still illegal, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, I think... No, that's the thing that cracked me up. They, I think that they could stretch out another episode with this quarantine. Like, I was thinking they could just go back to Gladys then, and then we get another episode of, like, the three, like, like we got, like all the Joneses back together, and then, but yeah, I don't, I don't think they're going right. to stick with that for very long. But I, I think that the, I guess I feel like the separation of, of FP and Alice is like, it hasn't turned into anything plot interesting yet because like, he's like, there's no real conflict between them. It's like, like either, yep. you know, either they're separated for like a really long time and that becomes a thing. Um, or FP talks to Gladys about his relationship with, with Alice and that becomes a thing. Um, oh, yes. which I think would be interesting because they because they also know each other. <laughs> Almost, uh, um, yeah. but <laughs> because like Gladys would know about the history of FP and Alice. Do they? Yeah. Because we well maybe she knows about their history, but do we like <gasps> we don't know if she even went to school with guys. Them. What's yeah. Gladys going to do when she finds out FP and Alice had a child? Ooh, oh, see, I need to know. See, someone was talking to me about this. Um, Gabby, uh. Evangeline Lilly's, I think, on Twitter, and I were talking about this and how we want um, some kind of tension to be, like, between Alice and Gladys uh-huh. about, uh, like, Gladys is the mother of his children, but so is Alice! <gasps> They're the mothers of FP's children. And, <gasps> and I also feel bring like... Bring back Charles! And I, bring back Charles! He's coming back, I, I also feel like I could see from Gladys's point of view that she would be really angry at alice for alice not telling fp that like like i think as a person who really cares about fp um i think she would very much be like fp wasn't angry at alice fp loves alice and he understood like she was like in trauma about this like when he when she came to him about it so there was no opportunity for him to be like how could you not tell me this thing like they never they never really had that out but i feel like gladys is somebody who we see is like ferociously protective you know however estranged they are they're like they're not divorced right they're just kind of separated there's like a a thing between them yeah um, as far as we know but yeah. but they but she called him immediately when like she you know like she didn't she didn't hold out on fp about where jughead was so i guess i feel like it would be interesting if she's if she sort of takes the like overprotective of fp role and is like how could you not give him a piece of information about his own life that was this big. And then maybe that's how we get like that conflict The FP didn't, didn't feel like he needed to have with Alice, but I could see that being something that for Gladys would be like, cause she's, she's such a straight shooter. Um, and also all the, mm-hmm. all the class stuff comes into it too, because like they would have all been like, presumably like, you know, serpent girls together. And then Alice, like, see, are they though? I yeah. mean, we need to know more well, about is Gladys. Gladys even a serpent. Yeah. 
Yeah, and she might not have been. I mean, she certainly is shady. Like her her business is largely illegal, was sort of implied. But like either way, she's like a scrappy blue collar person, and FP is a scrappy blue collar person, and Alice was, and then married into kind of like the Riverdale aristocracy and became like an enemy Mm -hmm. of like the South Side and the Serpents and everybody for like decades. So I feel like um, I think there's a lot of different avenues where Gladys could could feel a real sort of antagonism towards Alice and kind of a sense of like, like how could FP love this person that Gladys thinks of as being sort of like on the other side from them. And so what would it take to sort of get them on the same side? And that to me feels like something having to do with like protecting their children, you know, like the sort of like the mama bear fierceness, like it's, yeah, it's, it's having like, girlfriends. Betty and yeah. Jughead are both in danger. Gladys and Alice will team up, no questions asked. Right. Ooh, I, love I like that. that. And it's clear that Gladys. Oh, yeah, their just- kids are dating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's clear that Gladys isn't just a one off character. You know, yeah. like we've seen um, Gina with the cast a lot more. So um, if she was a one off character, I'd be like, great. That was awesome. But um, I'm glad that we're going to see more about of yeah. her because I'm really I mean, interested in it's like It's like their Molly story. Ringwald. Like, you don't cast an actor of that stature. You, you can't afford to make them a regular. Yeah. You don't cast an actor like that if you only intend to use them once. You know, you sort of like right. strategically deploy them periodically over the course of the season for like maximum effect. Right. I'm just really excited for like all the drama she's going to be bring mm-hmm. on like every level. And like, I think I want. I think what I want for the snake rest of snake parents for this season is I want to see FP like struggle between like doing what's best for his kids and doing what he actually wants and like weighing all of those options. And like, I want to see him like choose Alice at some point because he hasn't done that before. Mm. And like, so like when they were kids, he didn't choose her really. And like when they kind of like grew up and, like, even in season two, he didn't really, like, fight for her when they I, got back together. Yeah. And it just feels kind of like it's he's easy. just gone away with, like, what's convenient with yeah. her. And, but, like, then there are moments, like, the leave him moment when it's, mm-hmm. like, clear that he has deeper feelings for her. He just, just, neither of them are capable of voicing them yet. Yeah. And I really want something, like, either with Gladys or with the Griffins and Gargoyles plot or something like getting Alice out of the farm to like come back and push him to actually like admit those feelings to her face. I think there are a lot of people who think that FP is now like people probably mainly people who don't ship snake parents are probably out here thinking that um, snake parents is over and that FP is just going to choose Gladys now because Oh, that's not how that works. (laughs) I I really believe that, you know, FP and Gladys, they split up for a reason. And I think that he knows in his heart that like his, time with Gladys is over and they can still be Mm -hmm. civil obviously and they can still you know do stuff for the betterment of their children but I think that he knows that that it's time to move on but even if they get back together for a bit that still doesn't make it endgame you know like I don't mind if like they have to go through a bit where like FP and Gladys give it another go Mm because then we get some angst with Alice and Alice trying to figure out what she wants Yeah. yeah Like, I think that that's, like, an important part of their journey. Yeah. I think especially, like, if we end up getting more of the farm storyline and we see Alice's loyalties being kind of conflicted where there's, like, and there's there's the side of her that's, like, in Riverdale, you know, with her daughter and all this sort of G&G stuff. And then there's this part of her that's still kind of, like, mentally hooked into Edgar and the farm. And so I feel like if that, if that yeah. half of Alice's storyline 
dials up. Like if she leaves again, if she starts acting more and more like, you know, like they're in her head, like to what Sam was saying, like if it's, if it was sort of nudging from the farm that opened Alice up to the idea of like, of, of letting FP in, what if nudging from the farm is like, nope, actually, nope, you got to cut him off now. So she does, you know? So I, I feel like that could, that could. Yes. Oh, I love that. That makes sense. I love that. What if he threatens the farm? Mm-hmm. That could open up some space. Right. So then that could open up some space for then like for FP and Gladys to sort of like come back to each other a little bit while Alice is in like farm crazy land. But I do like my sort of like my real kind of ultimate snake parents fantasy is, is the idea of like, like if it does turn out that Edgar either is the gargoyle king or is like super involved in it and Alice is like in danger on the farm, like FP like <gasps> roaring up in his motorcycle and like smashing down doors to get to her would be like super, super hot. Mm. The romance. I would love for that to be like the reveal of the farm. Too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes to like rescue her. Yeah. Like, like, like the, the reveal of this huge thing that we've been waiting for is snake parents. Yes. Like, because I do, I like one thing that gets under my skin with it a little bit is I do feel like only Betty has actually noticed that Alice is acting strangely. Like FP hasn't really right. commented on it yet, so either he hasn't seen it or or it benefits him, you know, like because they're sleeping together now and they're like in a relationship. So he hasn't he hasn't had that moment of like you don't really seem like the Alice Cooper that I remember what is this from doing to your brain? Like it's really only Betty sort of surrounded by all of this gaslighting who has, who has addressed that. So I feel like if we leave it to that only being Betty and FP never gets a moment of being like, Hey, like this doesn't sound like you, like if she like breaks up with him out of nowhere or something like that, like I feel like she's got to sort of do something for him to clue in that like, like, I just need him to know that the farm is f***ing with her head. And so far, he doesn't yeah, seem yeah, to have clocked that. I, there's also been a few shots of Alice. A few shots. There's, a, there's one shot in the, in the teaser for the second half of season uh, three. And then there's been a couple behind-the-scenes pictures of Machen back in, like, the season two aesthetic of, of Alice. Like, in her, like tighter like north side clothes and her like yeah her north side meets south side style that isn't like the farm style that's like so clearly different from how she's looked before mm-hmm. um but then there's also been behind the scenes shots after that of her back in the farm clothes so i'm like it's I, what's the game here <laughs> like what's the truth it well it depends on which personality the plot requires alice to have see what that is another thing that bothers me <laughs> Like, can we not erase the character development that she's had th- so far just for plot f***ery? Well, yeah, it's like you you have to pick a lane. Like, but this is Riverdale. Either the farm has changed her into someone totally unrecognizable, in which case that's the story and everyone should see it and notice it in her. And it should yeah. be, and again, that's her plot. And it becomes about how do we save Alice from this wackadoodle cult that has turned her into this weird hippie with flat hair or thanks a lot polly or um or it's not and and then her storyline is something completely different and she's still normal alice but like they do like like the the back and forth of it feels really confusing like i i don't 
I don't understand what we're meant to believe the impact of the farm has been on her then, you know? Right. Other than to like torture Betty. Periodically. And then, and every once in a while, and then she doesn't. Yeah. Which yeah. could be like Let's what the entire point of it is just to torture Betty. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is um, dumb and annoying because Betty's the only kid that hasn't like abandoned her. Yeah. Polly. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, that's our halfway point. Did you have to go, Sam? If we're not asking me any more questions, I think yes. Okay, cool. Um, Thank you so much to Sam for joining us for this first half. Sam's going over to Emily's house. Yeah, Sam's going over to see our <laughs> friend Emily uh, before. Sam doesn't know anything about D&D, so she has nothing to contribute to the second well, half of this podcast. You're going to learn. <laughs> yeah. Oh, when you, when you okay. listen you're to learn it, you'll today. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Sam, do you want to tell everybody where they can find you on the internet one more time before you go? Um, I'm on Twitter at SamKCC. That's S-A-M-C-A-S-E-Y-C. Oh, you didn't know how to spell your name for a second there. I just didn't want to add the S and be wrong because I changed it again. Mm -hmm. Which is a lot harder to say than my old username. But it makes more sense because I have a C at the end of my name and not not an S. Um, But anyway, you can find me there. And I'm under Samantha Coley at Telltale TV where you can find all of my articles. And yeah. I just love to talk about TV and uh, my ships. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank Honor you so to have much you. for letting me Okay, love you, bye. About, um, these old people I care about. <laughs> wow, just cut me off. <laughs> I think the, the lag is pretty bad. She might not have meant to. Play the Emmys music. Okay. Yeah, but it's, it's funnier that way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, love you, bye. Did you guys know that there's going, that we, you guys, we had such a good time at Unity Days. This we past did. year, or we did this past week. All of us were there. So much fun. Mm. Did you guys also know that the people who made Unity Days are also making a Riverdale convention? I knew that. Did you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I also knew that. It's called Sweet River Con and it's happening November 8th to 10th, 2019. And it's going to be right here in Vancouver. And right now, the people who are announced are Machen Amick and um, Camila Mendez who will be seeing there at the, the convention. So if you're also interested in seeing them, um, you should come and say hi. I love it. Yeah. That was I'm a really good excited. sales pitch. Thanks. Um, you can follow them at on Twitter at UnityEventCA for more information. And then you can also follow them on like Facebook and Instagram using that method. Um, we also have a Patreon. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash theafficionados. It's a service in which you can donate monthly to some of your favorite creators. And if we are one of those people, then... Um, Great, thanks. <laughs> Claire, you um, play D&D actively. We do not, and that's kind of an important thing this season. Uh, have you prepared things? Yes. Teach us about D&D. Um, so I, what I have for you is I, I want to kind of take you guys and, and any listeners um, who maybe are watching this season of, of Riverdale and have never played Dungeons & Dragons or another role-playing game before. They're just like a very quick kind of basic overview of like the game mechanics what is D? how do you play it and then also highlight some interesting places where there are like noteworthy similarities and also differences between griffins and gargoyles and dungeons and dragons in places where i think some some of them in ways that might actually turn out to be relevant to the plot and some of which are just sort of interesting yay yay so uh so i want to start by just kind of in in general terms we don't and we don't know a lot about the actual game mechanics of Griffiths and Gargoyles, which I'm sort of obsessed with. And I wish somebody would make like a playable 
version of it. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe the internet hasn't done this already. But um, I can't believe you haven't done this. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'm working up to it. But so so one of the sort of questions that I have for the show in a place that seems um, like I like I'm having a hard time clocking whether it's a parallel to how you actually play the game or or different. So we have these sort of these different characters, right? We have like there's the dead eye, there's the sorceress, there's a princess, and in in Dungeons and Dragons, sort of the first thing that you do, like the first step, is everybody creates their own character. There are sort of character categories, but there aren't like a preset menu of of characters like this is the princess and her name is so-and-so and she does this it's sort of like like you can pick um a race and a class and different like abilities but building but it's it's actually sort of a key part of the game that you build your own character their backstory their various traits and things like that so um but some of the different uh categories and and classes of characters map actually pretty organically onto the the various different characters that we that we have that we sort of met in the game. So so the basic sort of the way that you the way you sort of essentially start like a a D&D campaign from scratch is you sort of you get your group together and everyone picks their characters. And and that's one of the things that makes RPGs really like a lot of writers have talked about like growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons as sort of like this is a way that you kind of learn how to build story. Like you have this group of characters and they each kind of contribute a different set of skills to the whole. Like one, one kind of example of this in popular media is like the show leverage. So you have like a mastermind and then you have a hitter and a hacker and a grifter and a thief and every like quest or mission that they go on somehow involves like they're different and unique individual skill sets. Utilizing each of their skills. Sort of like do the thing together. And that doesn't mean that they don't occasionally like mix it up, like play each other's roles or like learn another skill, but that by and large, they each have like, it's very clear what each member kind of contributes. And so, um, so building a, uh, a, a, an adventuring party is sort of what you call your group um, in D&D what you want to try to do is sort of similarly kind of like, like mix it up. So something that I, that I think that I would like to know about how G and G works is, are there sort of like certain roles? Like, do you have to have a Hellcaster? Do you have to have a Deadeye? Or is it sort of similar to like, you can pick, like anyone kind of can pick whoever they want to be. So the game master, I want to start talking about that. Um, so Penelope in the past version and then Jughead in the present version um, are the game master. And it seems sort of Jughead seems to kind of indicate a little bit that potentially that's something that you sort of like graduate to becoming. And that's not how Dungeons and Dragons works at all. Like the, the game master in mm. D&D is like the storyteller and like the referee, like they're the one kind of building the world for you. So there's no there would be no such thing as something happening in a campaign that the game master would be surprised by. Like they're the ones building the world for you. They say like, okay, we're starting a game. You're all in this tavern in the village of whatever. And here's the problem that's facing this village. Go. And then everything that you do, you know, the game master is sitting there with their giant stack of manuals and probably seven different apps on their phone and a million different dice and all these things. And they're controlling what happens. So one place mm. where, where G and G differs really significantly is sort of this idea of like that there is some alternate kind of force that makes things happen that they don't know about. So then, so in terms of the characters, I went through and looked at the list of like both in the Midnight Club and in the sort of current day, the characters that um, like the different sort of 
uh, character types within the game that the characters play. Um, and a couple of them, there's like, there's no real parallel for like princess or siren. Um, there's no real sort of allegory to that, but a couple of them actually have pretty, um, pretty easy sort of, you can track which, which Dungeons and Dragons character they're supposed to be. So the, um, Fred as the radiant knight, um, that is a pretty close allegory to the Dungeons and Dragons class called Paladin. The Paladin has to be. Red Paladin. Oh, oh, yeah. I know that word. Yes. Um, So the Paladin in Dungeons and Dragons is one of the few characters that basically like has to be um, lawful good all the time. You guys know like the, like the alignment chart, like chaotic, neutral, chaotic. Totally. So, Oh yeah. The the, yeah. Neutral. So, so the radiant knight is always. Wait, hang on. Pause Claire. Yes. What is everyone in this room? I'm um, lawful, lawful neutral. You're a lawful neutral. Yeah. Claire, what are you? I feel like I'm probably chaotic neutral. I see that for you. I see you more as a chaotic good. I could, I could be like on the cusp. Definitely like I, chaotic. I ha- yeah, I have yeah. enough Slytherin in me that I feel like I'm, I'm like somewhere between good and neutral. Yeah, I, I vacillate between true neutral and chaotic neutral. I think. Yes, we all have it. Yes. Um. So, so the thing that I find mildly hilarious about Fred being the Radiant Knight slash Paladin is that the thing about the Paladin that makes it a character class people don't choose very often is that the fact that he has to be good all the time makes him sometimes kind of useless. Like there's situations in which <laughs> oh. like there's nothing he can really contribute to the team because he's like Mr. Rule Swallower. So the paladin is like a holy knight. Um, their power comes from the divine. Like you can pick like, you can pick deities. There's a bunch of different so sort of like fictional religions and stuff, but yeah. like their power comes from essentially like a god. Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Um. So if... If the Paladin and the Radiant Knight kind of go together in that way, um, mm-hmm. and of course it's Fred and Archie, that kind of, even if Paladin isn't like a thing that you can choose to be, like clearly it's like it exists, right? Because they talk about Archie as the Red Paladin. Um, yeah, even that- in the what's his name the warden calls him that so like what does mm-hmm. it mean for the paladin and the radiant knight to kind of coexist well so so that to me this was one of the ones that made me feel like like i go i go back and forth sometimes where i'm watching where i'm like has anyone in this writer's room actually played this game but i actually feel but this yeah. is this is the one that makes me feel like somebody potentially did because like it it actually it does feel a little bit like a, a sort of joke on the uselessness of fred like i mean i love fred like i i absolutely adore him but um but fred's and archie i get it yeah yeah yeah. but like but fred's um fred's morality means sometimes he's limited in how he can contribute to the plot if if helping the plot along or being useful or helping in some way requires that you do something that's kind of unethical fred will almost never do it right and um so that so it feels like like that the choice of that character for him just like yep i totally see it um and i think that by using the word palette and how they describe archie i think that's sort of a signifier that like you know, like the Andrews men kind of have this trait in common. I think the red paladin, you know, being like, oh, this is like this, like a slightly, slightly edgier, you know, like he's like a little bit more, um, maybe less locked into that kind of rigid morality. Whereas like Fred is playing the character who's like, like the, you know, knight of only truth and goodness and justice. And um, so I think that's interesting that that they would use red paladin because when I think of something mm-hmm. being like a specific color, you know what I mean? Like it's like a, 
Um, it, it makes me think of, I don't know how to explain this, kind of like chess pieces. It makes me feel like there are multiple mm. sides, right? So it's like, is there a yeah. blue paladin? Is there a green paladin? You know, like, what does red, and red is usually like, a. it's kind of like, it symbolizes war sometimes, but also yeah, symbolizes like, I, like passion. And I think, I think that like, like the word red for Archie plus the word radiant for Fred makes me feel a little bit like, like a white knight and a red knight, you know, like. Like Fred right. is a sort of like like the pure good, and Archie has a little bit more. Yeah, but also like using the word red mm. could po- possibly just be a joke because his hair red is red. Hair, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's largely what it is. But I do think that like I th- so I think that's a place where there's like 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 paladin kind of like rigid morality goodness like that one. I think I think tracks pretty neatly. Another yeah. one that uh, that felt like a pretty organic um, fit is uh, Hermione as the thief. So there's a class in Dungeons and Dragons called Rogue. Um, and that can be a lot of different things. Thief thief is one variant of it. But the Rogue can be, like it can be somebody who's like more like a sort of low level, you know, like a, um, like a pickpocket all the way up to like an assassin. Um, and their skills are things like you can set traps, you can pick locks, you can steal, you can move sneakily. They have a bonus attack kind of power where they get in when you're in combat, which I'll talk more about in a second about like the actual like gameplay. But um, but they get like a sneak attack. If your enemies don't see you coming, if you're a rogue, you can always sort of like you can sneak up on people. And and so what I like about that for Hermione um, and her choosing that character is like when we meet flashback Hermione, like she's this sort of she's like the good girl, right? She's like the Catholic girl. And and we learn that she like marries into, you know, like a criminal enterprise and sort of becomes that kind of through Hiram. But I think the fact that that's the thing that she chooses when she sort of it's it's like it's like a tiny little way to kind of be a teenage rebel, you know. Um, and she's also extremely smart, very sneaky. So that made me wonder, like, like in terms of of the sort of rogue archetype as somebody who is good at like setting traps, moving around unnoticed, like hiding in plain sight, doing things that are unexpected. I think it could be interesting if potentially some part of um, of the reveal of how the G&G storyline plays out, especially if Hiram, if either of it ends up that he is the Gargoyle King or he just leads them to him, if Hermione operating as some kind of a double agent potentially could play a role in that. Um, so that's something Great. that I, that I, that I like the dead eye, which is FP and Cheryl. There's no direct allegory for it. The closest one, um, is the ranger. And that's what I play. Um, so that's the character that I kind of know the best. Um, ranger, like, is that like an archer or something? Um, kind of, uh, they're, so they're, they're, that would be like, um, like Aragorn or Robin Hood. Um, they're hunters or trackers or scouts. Um, the, the rangers have you, you have limited like magic abilities. They have um there's a couple of uh of them that have like very clear sort of like like when when the game Dungeons and Dragons was created, they basically like they based the ranger archetype on Aragorn. Like it's very much drawn from you know from that. So cool. So so some of the things that make a ranger special are you have um and I this may or may not come up like really at all, but but you have you have sort of a special connection both to um, usually to animals and to terrain. So like when I'm like my character, um, both the game that I'm playing now with my coworkers um, and the like long running game I played for like two or three years with my like all girls group. um, I was ranger in both of them. And so you get to like choose, um, you know, from all the different sort of like enemies that exist in like 
that you could fight, you get to sort of choose like, okay, this is my specialty. Um, like I, so you have extra powers if you're fighting like, you know, dragons or orcs or whatever. You're also like, you're the one who can, um, like you can scout for, um, like for food and resources, you know, the terrain really well. So, so, and, and it's not required, but it is common that the ranger's expertise is in what are called ranged weapons, which basically like far away weapons. So like, um, like fighters who have like, you know, like big armor and chain mail and like lots of like, you know, brute strength, you might have what's called a melee weapon, which is like a club or like your fist, like up close and personal weapons. Um, and, so Claire, if, so yeah. if you've played as the ranger twice, every time someone's yeah. like, which character would you like to be? What makes you choose the ranger again and again? So, um, so I, um, I like both of the ranges that I play, they're both archers. Um, so that's something that I really enjoy. Um, range weapons are basically weapons from far away. So what I can do like in combat is I can like, like I'm like the sniper essentially. Um, like I'm, I'm the scout when we're sort of adventuring and then I'm the sniper when we're in combat. I can go far back and like pick people off with my bow. I also so very echo from hundred. Yes, very yeah. Echo would be would totally be a ranger. Um and uh and Cheryl too, you know, like Cheryl Cheryl with her like with her real life archery skills. Um, yeah. the other thing that I like about Rangers, like it's a um for me, it's like it's a more straightforward character. Um where the game and I'll talk about this more when I get into sort of the game mechanics, but like for me, just as a player, the hardest part of the game is if you have to keep track of a lot of spells because they have their own like totally separate game mechanic from how combat works. And it's just like a million things to remember and so confusing and Rangers like above like a certain level, you're like, you get like three spells. You can like, you can cure wounds. You can like communicate with animals. They're all really simple. And whereas if you're like, there's sorcerers, there's clerics, there's wizards, there's like a million different kind of magical based um, things that you can play. And for me, like, like, I, you know, I'm playing for like maybe four years, but I still think of myself kind of as a beginner. And so a character like a ranger, there's less um, of that to kind of remember. And I also just, and I think lady archers are really hot, but so I've gotten pretty good at that. <laughs> okay. First of all, T. Second of all, why do you still think of yourself as a beginner? Um, I, well, I don't, um, most of the groups that I've been in, like we don't play super, super regularly. Like we play um, like once a month or once every two weeks. Um, so there's still things that I feel like, and, and also in every, every GM works differently. So there's still things like that I have to like look up or things where I'm like, oh wait, which dice is this? Like um, oh, I yeah. have to remember like, like I have, to, I have to like make a lot of notes to myself. There's a lot of like, okay, when I, when it says like we roll for this thing, I have to like roll this, it's this dice and I have to add whatever. So there's just like, there's a lot of data to keep track of. If we've been playing for long enough, like my brothers have been playing RPGs for like decades and they can do a lot of this stuff without cheat sheets in front of them. And, but, but both of the games that I've played in have been like composed of lots of beginners. So they've both been like really kind of like easy and welcoming and chill. Like you can ask the GM, be like, what do I do with this? And he's like, roll that dice and add four to it. Okay. So I don't play with a lot of people who are like, you know, like impatient and, and judgy, but it is like, there's like a lot. You're not playing with a jughead. Yeah. 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 But there's like a lot to remember. So yeah. But so the, so the dead eye, the dead eye would be, would be my character, um, would be the ranger. The other two. So, so sorceress, um, which is Alice, there is a character called sorcerer and, uh, and there is a character called wizard, which I think is probably the closest allegory to the Hellcaster. And they're a little, different so a wizard would be somebody like like these are sort of it's like you're you know your gandalfs your merlins etc etc you specialize in <laughs> exactly you specialize in magic that you have had to learn 
So when you're playing as a wizard, you have to kind of like prepare and store up a certain number of spells in advance. And then you can kind of like, you know, like, like disperse them when you're in combat or whatever. And, uh, and you can choose from there's sort of different categories of wizard that are based on like, they're called like arcane traditions, basically, like, what did you study at Hogwarts, essentially? Arcane invoker is one of them. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the word arcane comes up a lot. Um, So, so the, I, my guess would be the closest allegory to a Hellcaster would be if you were playing as a wizard, and the arcane tradition that you chose was the necromancer, which has power mm-hmm. over like life and death and the undead. So my guess is that's probably who Jughead would be. And the, the sorceress, something I like about, about this just for Alice, is the key difference between sorcerers and wizards is that sorcerers are sort of like innately magic and their magic is like it's more limited because they're not relying on like spell books and like prepared spells, but it's more powerful. So like it comes from like, who they are so like wizards study magic and learn all these spells and sorcerers kind of just like have it innately so they might not be super useful in like close-up combat but the things that they can do like nobody else can do what sorcerers can do so which i like for alice like the 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 power comes from like who she is as a person whereas like the wizard like jughead's character is like he's like learn it by the book which feels kind of like maybe analogous to like how they play the game. You know, like Jughead wants to like learn mm-hmm. all the rules and figure out how to like game the system. Mm-hmm. And Alice is just like, yo, I'm badass. Yeah, yeah so, she's captain and she's like, I'm gonna wing this one. Yeah. So though so in terms of like who who the characters are playing as, those all kind of map out. And you know, and and like paladin aside, like it's a that like that's a that's like a reasonably diverse. You'd be like, yeah, I could play with that adventure party. You've got a rogue, you've got a wizard and a sorcerer, you've got a ranger, you've got a paladin. The one thing they don't have, and I wasn't sure if they sort of mapped on with one of the characters whose names we never found out, but most of the time you have at least one just like big ass fighter. And they didn't seem to have that. So that was something that I was sort of wondering, like some big brawny half orc covered in chain mail who can just smash things. So um, the other thing that was interesting to me was that all the characters they're playing in Griffins and Gargoyles appear as far as we've learned to be human. And, and in Dungeons and Dragons, that would really limit you. So you have like, after you've sort of chosen kind of what class of character you want to play, am I a rogue? Am I a ranger? Am I a bard? Whatever. You also choose what kind of species you are. So like you can be a human. Um, My, my like, one of my two ranger characters is human, one's an elf. Um, and then there's, you know, there's gnomes, there's dwarves, there's halflings, which are basically like hobbit, but, you know, not a copyright violation. <laughs> and then, and then in, and then like in further expansions of the game, like as it's been reissued, you know, they add more and more like elaborate, like you can be like a tiefling, which is like kind of a half demon. You can be like a dragonborn, like there's all kinds of different things you can be. Um, but like, can you be a gargoyle? Um, I don't think so. Maybe maybe in the like super nerd like, you know, expansion pack version you can. I've never seen it. Because I think it says a lot about Griffins and Gargoyles that you can only be human and the only supernatural like being is the gargoyle. Yeah, I that's something that I wonder about a little bit too. Just it it definitely feels like Yeah, and where's the griffin? Well, I, yeah. And that's so here's what I wonder is if like Where's the griffin and griffins and gargoyles? Well, she, but when Alice comes out and she's like, I'm the griffin queen. Like, it's in there somewhere, you know? Like, it's... it's so Betty. Uh, Betty, yeah. But so so what I wonder about is, like, is the fact that you're all playing as humans and then you're sort of up against this one bad guy, which is also... So this is also sort of a qualitative 
difference between the two games is like, you know, in a D&D campaign, like the bad guy can be like whoever the you want. Like it can be like we're we're on this road trip and we've stumbled upon a village that's being beset by trolls and then you're fighting against the trolls maybe the trolls are being controlled by a sorcerer and so like the final big boss you have to destroy the sorcerer you know and then like you continue on after you've solved that dilemma and then a couple weeks later you're like oh no and these people are being attacked by i don't know like werewolves or whatever you know so so the gm really sort of decides like you know what what enemies you're fighting, how the combat with them plays out. And in this game, it's really, it's like humans against this one creature all the time who both is the bad guy right. and also sort of controls them. So so knowing what we know about how it was originated, which was a bunch of like scared, delusional girls in a convent, you're like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Like they're sort of identifying, like those character archetypes came from like themselves, from like, you know, like the original kids in the in the convent who were playing this game you know but that is so that is a place where there's also a lot of a lot of difference like you can't you can't vary like strength everyone is like you're a human and that's it you can't be like you know you can't be a character that's more physically powerful have, than, than gargoyle okay i have a question okay. and let me know if this is possible not so much like either one of you basically is it at all possible that charles was born at the sisters of quiet mercy he was wasn't he? i think he was yeah, yeah. could charles be the gargoyle king Oh my god, what a outside. Can you imagine? Yeah. That would be crazy. He'd be like, old enough. Come back yeah. to take revenge on people that he believes He's supposed betrayed to be him. like mid-20s. Like, yeah. He could do it. Holy crap. What if Hiram found him first? What if Charles mm. is the gargoyle king? Okay, I'm going to put that one out there now. I'm into yeah. it. I'm okay. into so if it, it happens, Brittany had it. Okay. Yes. Sorry, continue. Okay. So, no, I love this. Okay, so, um, so once you sort of like, you've all picked your characters and you sort of have your like have your have your party together the way that you sort of track all the sort of stuff about who you are like there are there are things that you can sort of just do and there are things that require rolls of dice and so sometimes like whatever character you choose has has particular skills and proficiencies which usually translates to like you get a you get a dice bonus on doing that thing so for example like like I'm an archer my character um is an archer and and that means that like that's like that's my specialty. I get like a proficiency bonus when I use my longbow. So I roll my dice and then I add a bonus to it. That's my like I have a sword. I can use the sword, but I don't get as much of a bonus for it. So you have these things called character sheets, which are essentially where you sort of track like, you know, what your sort of various abilities are. There are kind of or six sort of general general categories of um of character, I guess like abilities, traits, strength, dexterity, constitution, um, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Um, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. And then, yes! <laughs> yes! Uh, and then from those six things, that's sort of broken down into a list of like more specific traits like acrobatics, animal handling, arcana, athletics, deception, history, insight, intimidation, investigation, medicine, nature, perception, performance, persuasion, religion, sleight of hand, stealth, and survival. And those things, they're, they're, they're each either like, they're either related to wisdom or intelligence or strength. They all kind of map onto one of those broad strokes things. And you get, when you're first building a character, you like roll your dice and you sort of, to sort of set up like, okay, how many, how many points, how much power do I have in each of these categories? So, so I'm, I have the character sheet for my, um, the game I play with my coworkers where my character's name is Bellatrix the Defender. She's a dragon slayer. Um, yes. And, um, and I'm an elf, so I'm not very 
big and strong. So my strength is only like a plus one, but I'm fast and I'm really smart. So my dexterity and my wisdom are where I have like the highest ability. So things like animal handling, perception, stealth, survival, I have like high bonuses in those areas, but I have negative one charisma because I am a jerk. So like... (laughs) So anything that requires having to like charm people or be persuasive, I usually like lay back and let somebody else handle it. Um, so you fill out this sort of character sheet, some of it's automatic from the dice roll, some of it you sort of like fill in for yourself, like backstory, where are they? And um, and it's also like really helpful. That's sort of where you tra- keep track of things like, are there special traits related to you being, um, like I'm an elf ranger and there are special traits about being an elf and then special traits about being a ranger and they, they're sort of all kept there. So like, I'm a hunter. I can like, I can track things on the terrain. I can like, I get extra bonuses in terms of find, like I can't get lost. I can't like, I can always like find food when I'm tracking creatures. I have extra bonuses. And then as an elf, um, you can see in the dark, um, magic can't put you to sleep. Can you tell time, time zones? Shut up. That's not funny. (laughs) Uh, so you have sort of various different kind of skills and like, and then you have some things that you could just sort of make up for yourself. Like what's your character's backstory? You get a menu of spells that you can choose from. I have, I only have two cause I'm like a level, I think level three ranger. So my two spells are, I can cure wounds by touching somebody. Um, and when at once per turn, I can, when I, if I shoot my arrow, um, and it hits the person, I can make thorns sprout out of it. And anyone within like a five foot radius gets shot by thorns. It's very cool. I do jazz hands when I do it. Um, oh so, um, <laughs> so you have, so essentially like really, really simple actions are things that you kind of just do sort of, sort of improv acting with the game master. Um, and more complicated actions are what involve the dice. And this is one of the things where I was saying, like, I still kind of feel like a beginner figuring out what are the things that I can just be like, I'm going to do this thing. And they'll be like, okay, versus like, I'm going to do this thing, mm, roll a dice first. Sort of figuring out where those lines are is one of the things that like gets easier the more you play it. So like, as an example, say like, you're like just beginning a game. Um, a lot of times the way the game starts is you're like, all five of you are in a tavern in a village, go. Um, and so say, <laughs> say like, you want to go strike up a conversation with the innkeeper because you're getting a sense that like there's something shady going on in this town and you want to know what's going on. Um, So you could just like walk up to the innkeeper and be like, Hey, what's up? And depending on what the game master decides, he could just tell you, he could just be like, yeah, man, like it's common knowledge that this village has a dragon problem and we got all these dragons and it really sucks. And like, they might just tell you and you don't have to roll that or anything. That's like, that's like easy. Um, oh yeah our dragon problem yeah but then like maybe you walk up to the innkeeper yeah yeah, yeah. we have a dungeon problem too (laughs) (laughs) we'd like to put the dragons in the dungeons ideally (laughs) exactly in a perfect world but like maybe you get up there and you're like hey what's up and the innkeeper is like acting really cagey and like seems like he knows something but doesn't really want to talk to you then you have to maybe use a skill to actually get information out of him um like maybe you maybe you have to persuade the innkeeper to trust you and talk to you or maybe you have to like sleuth around the inside of the tavern to see if something looks weird or like you're sneaking around and eavesdropping another patron's conversations so something that requires the use of 
some kind of a skill beyond just like, hi, what's up? <laughs> um, so then you do what's called a, a check. Um, and a check means you have your your 20-sided dice, your D20, and you roll it, and then you add whatever is the modifier on your sheet for that particular skill. So say I wanted to like persuade the innkeeper to tell me what's going on. I roll my dice for a persuasion check. So I, whatever number I get, um, I look at my sheet. I say, okay, I have a negative one for persuasion because that's charisma of which I have none. So if I roll a 16, then my score is 15. Then the GM decides like, okay, is that enough? Like, is that, is that a high enough roll that your check was successful? And it's usually compared to like some numbers on, on his side for like, like what's the innkeeper's amount of, I don't know, resistance or persuasion. There's like, there's always like numbers that they have on their side. They don't always necessarily know. Like I roll the dice. Was it successful? If you roll a one, you always fail. If you roll a 20, you always succeed. So, so like say I roll and the GM is like, yes, that was a high enough roll. Your persuasion check was successful. You persuaded the incubator to talk and then he's going to tell you whatever he needs to know. Um, so that's for basically anything that isn't combat. That's kind of how everything works. It's some combination of really simple actions like talking to a person, walking along, picking up, examining objects, sort of observing what's around you and more complicated things that require, you know, require dice to sort of go along with them. And the story usually starts in a setting like that. Like you're all in some tavern, like some neutral place. Um, and then someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, we're having a real problem with bandits on the south road out of town. Can you guys go take care of them if we hire you? And then your group goes to check out the bandit situation. And that's how you end up in combat, which has its own totally different set of rules that are sort of similar and sort of different. So in combat, there's almost nothing that you can just do. Like even how many steps you can take is really regulated. So like when you see people playing Dungeons and Dragons with like, like a big gridded board, like a big sort of like, like, I think they have this like in Stranger Things, like a big kind of like, oh, yeah, um, like a sheet of paper, or like we use dry erase a lot now, like gridded into squares. That's because like, you can only move a certain number of feet per turn, you get like one action. So um, um, so Claire, yes. wait, can I ask a real quick question? Yeah, yeah. Would you say that it's easier or harder to have like a larger amount of people? Like, like, does it make it easier to have more people? Um, it's, I, th- I think the ideal is like, like five people plus a GM. Like the group that I'm in now with my right. coworkers, we started as two separate parties that had, I think like, um, that had like six in them. And then, um, cause we were going to just play like a short term, like a four week game and then yeah and then we didn't finish the game in four weeks my group got stuck in the same cave for like a month and oh my god and, and we and people kept dying it was insane so we merged the groups finally to kind of keep going so now there's like 10 of us and it's insane we have three bards nobody needs three bards we have it turns take <laughs> turns take a really long time and uh and it puts a huge amount of like it's chaos for the gm to like have to manage that like it's really fun right. but it's also like it's a little bit it's a little bit nutty. So like the size of the group that the midnight club has is like, that's about as big as you'd, as you'd want it. And, and p- right. particularly like combat is the reason why that's tricky. Like if you're just kind of like hanging out, like you can branch off, like three of us are going to go over here and buy new supplies. while three of us are going to stay here in the tavern and chat with these randos. But when you're in combat, like everyone who's there, like you have to, you have to take turns in a very particular order. So if you, once you're in combat, you're like, the GM's like, oh no, you've run into bandits. Okay, now we stop. 
Then everyone rolls the dice and you roll for what's called initiative, which is the order that the play goes. Mm. And the whole time you're in that combat situation, that's the order everything happens. And that includes when the bad guy's turn is. So uh, so then you get like, so you, you have your like order that everyone goes and you just go, your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn. Everyone gets one move. Um, sometimes there are things called bonus actions that like, in special circumstances, you can do a second thing, but for the most part, you can do one thing. You can, and they're usually, it's like you can move, you can attack with a weapon, you can cast a spell, like a very basic thing like that. And weapons are all dice rolls. So, like for example, like I was saying, um, Bellatrix is an is an archer, so the longbow is where I'm the most effective, um, and I get a plus seven bonus. If I want to shoot somebody, I roll my d20 whatever that score is, then I add seven to it, which is my bonus. And what determines whether or not it's successful is the bad guy that I'm shooting at basically like what's his, it's called armor class. Like how protected is he from weapons? So say I roll like a 12, but then I add seven to it. So it's 19. If his armor class is lower than 19, that means my arrow hit him. And then the next thing that I do is I roll a second dice to determine like how much damage he did. So for my arrow, it's a D8, it's an eight-sided dice, and then I add three to it. So one D8 plus three. So if I roll a six, that means that he just took nine points of damage. The GM tracks that against his point total. And then when he gets down to zero points, he's dead. But then and then it also works the other way too. So like because So like does it work that is there a point system in Griffins and Gargoyles too? Like that you've been able to see? Well that's something that I haven't been able to figure out because we haven't we haven't really seen them in a combat situation, we've mostly seen them like adventuring. Um, like I know they have dice, like I know they have, and they all have weapons, but like, there's no, like it, the thing, this is where it's tricky. is like, there doesn't seem to be an enemy to fight except the gargoyle King. Like it isn't like you're fighting exactly. an army of henchmen where like, like you might have like, you know, we're in combat and we're fighting. There's like eight trolls and they're being controlled by a wizard. So we're like, we're like picking off the henchman before we can get to the big guy. Like in G&G, it's like all of you against this one archvillain who also has like mind control powers like all the time. So in terms of the combat mechanics, I have no idea. But would Archie's prison breakout count as one? Well, that's where I feel like the, the quest cards make that confusing. The quest cards are not a dynamic that exists in in Dungeons and Dragons. Like you, like you have okay. you have quests. Like you go on quests, but they're created by the master. They're not like assigned to you from a random deck of quest options. They're like created to go along with the campaign that you're on. So, and one of the things that that is tricky about it is like like normally. You know, like I was saying, like what what makes a group strong is everybody having different skill sets. Like in combat, that means, you know, you're all like the group of you are facing a group of enemies together and you sort of like everyone uses their skill set collaboratively. So like like I'm usually the sniper. I'm usually like back hidden in the underbrush with my super strength bow and arrow picking off like, you know, the henchmen, whatever, to clear a path for like a sorcerer or a warlock or a wizard or someone with like a ton of magical power to go for like the big boss. That's usually my job. But that requires that you have like, you know, like lesser, you know, there's like a group of bad guys, basically. So that's like, that's an area where I feel like the mechanics of how, like how the quest cards work, like the, the you know, the kill, like the free the red paladin thing. Um, like how, how, how are they, how do they plan ever to explain to us how it worked that Jughead invented from his own mind, as far as he knew, a quest for the kids to go on 
that mapped exactly with what the prison warden was <laughs> doing. You know, like like what is they are never going to explain that. They're though. never going to explain it unless it turns out that it's like, oh, this is like a quest card that Jughead got and was like inspired. But like, do they? Do the kids have the quest cards, or do we only see like the warden and those people with them? Like that they were given. I'm pretty sure the kids have quest cards in their own deck. Yeah, yeah. Because like, like, except you know, except Jughead's is save the Red Paladin, and the wardens was kill the Red Paladin. Was kill the Red Paladin. Yeah. So yeah, so I feel like so that's a place where I'm kind of like, okay, how are you gonna explain you know that? And then the other thing also that I know how to explain it. Ooh, whoever is printing off like alternative like cards like kill the red paladin you just go to your yeah. local kinkos i swear to god this whole show just comes back to whoever is photocopying stuff in a kinkos that's true that's really really true yep that's always kinkos. thank you um the other two other things that i noticed that are places where there where there seem to be some kind of plot related i guess differences between the two games are that griffins and gargoyles incorporate some aspects of larping that really do not turn up much in Dungeons right. and Dragons like you you know there's there's a fair amount of like like improv acting between you and the GM which is the part that I'm the worst at um, and a really good GM can do like lots of different voices and lots of different personalities and things like that and kind of like be a different bunch of different characters so there's always a little bit of like like you're having a conversation back and forth like as your character there's like a little bit of acting in it but you never you almost never like dress up and you don't move around. You're sitting at a table. So the sort of idea of like, right. like in the, in the midnight club where they're, where they're like dressed up exercise during Dungeons and Dragons as these characters. And like the game board is like the whole school, like that's its own thing. Like that doesn't exist in, in D and yeah. um, And then also there are two, like when you're playing D and D, there are two different ways that you can kind of like level up. One of them is, uh, and I've, and I've done it both ways. So the game I'm playing now, my coworkers game, we use what's called milestone based where like the GM kind of just determines based on like, you know, congratulations, you successfully completed this quest. Now everyone gets bumped up from level one to level two. And then there's a point based way to do it, which is what my old game used to do, where every at the end of every game, the GM says like, okay, so like, you know, you you guys collectively killed the evil wizard. And that gets you X number of experience points, which is divided amongst everybody who is there, plus like a special bonus for this person for this thing that they did or this person for this thing they did or whatever. And then and then there's like a mathematical system in like the GM manual like where you hit like x thousand points and now you're level four or whatever and that's so there's no such thing as like an ascension sort of thing no no there's none of that and and there's also no way like you don't you don't go from becoming a player to becoming the game master like you are the game master the entire time because you're the person who's literally making up the game um so so one place where it's like where it seems like the show is kind of leading towards like indicating that there are genuinely supernatural elements to this is this whole sort of notion that there are things that happen in the game of which the game master is not actually in control. Yeah. Right. And and that's something where I'm like, are they going to explain that? Maybe. <laughs> no. And and if they explain it and the answer isn't there is an actual magical wizard gargoyle king person, then I I'm curious to see how that will all um, play out. So anyway, so those are that's just like a very like there's obviously there's 
that's very sort of basic, simple, like the game can be infinitely more complicated than that. Um, but that's sort of the basics in terms of how I feel like it sort of intersects with the like with the actual plot. But I do feel like so the things that I'm sort of watching for um, that I'm that I'm interested in in terms of how the game becomes sort of relevant to the plot are one I think it would be kind of amazing and then we and I feel like we're kind of getting hints of this already like I love the idea that of it turning out that everything bad that has happened in Riverdale was somebody playing a quest card from like Jason Blossom's death to like all right. like all of this stuff like dating back to whenever the game was invented like like I I'd be really interested in that kind of retcon. I'm obsessed with that idea of like all of it actually being predetermined. Yeah, because the thing like the thing that makes it like the biggest j- sort of specific thing about Griffins and Gargoyles is, is like like it is literally set in Riverdale. Like Eldervere is Riverdale and yeah. the physical landmarks of the world that you're in map onto the real world of Riverdale and that's obviously not true in D&D where you're playing in like fantasy realms that don't exist that are all sort of inspired by like classics of fantasy literature. So you're sort of, you know, things are drawn from like Middle Earth and Narnia and like, you know, sort of like the heyday of like fantasy and sci-fi in this, you know, 60s and 70s and things like that. And like drawn like traits from those things. But you're kind of making up your own world. And I think the fact that um, that this game is set very specifically in like a physical terrain that's literally Riverdale and and that we've already gotten these kind of touch points of like connections between real world things happening like the prison stuff with quests mean I think it could be really interesting if part of the reveal of this is learning like what other things happening sort of behind you know like behind the scenes that we've encountered already that seemed to have another explanation you know, like did Hal become the Black Hood because he got a quest card you know like like is that all is it all going to sort of be tied in together which is an argument in favor of it being somebody like Penelope who's been around the whole time as opposed to somebody like Edgar who is sort of just now kind of coming into the story so I I don't know but i do you know i do think that there are there are some questions in terms of like how how does the game work for the characters that are playing it that are very like like gng exists sort of in the more physical world like you have to like you know, like drinking the kool-aid and moving around the school building and wearing the costumes and things like that 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 are not part of typical Dungeons and Dragons play and and so the question is sort of like is that a choice that they made to make it more like cinematic like make it like visually interesting to watch kids playing a game or is that going to become something that's like important later and I don't know right that's my big question as well is like sort of not quite that same thing but sort of attached to it is are they going to push Riverdale to a realm where they can explain away everything by saying oh it was a supernatural like phenomenon Or are they going to keep it rooted in logic and keep Sabrina and sort of Greendale as this odd little magical bubble? And I lean more towards that this is a very physical place where there's no supernatural things because then it kind of rewrites the laws of the whole show. And I don't know if your show could survive doing that. Yeah, I wonder that too. Like it, like part of me feels like like it it is a coincidence that they introduced like their first real gesture towards the existence of a supernatural realm this season of Riverdale that premiered concurrently with Sabrina like it mm-hmm. like 
So, so part of me feels like, like if their intention is to keep those worlds separate, that's a weird choice. And they kind of can't considering like characters have crossed over and And little clues have been back and forth. And it could be like, it could be something where, you know, it, it could end up being like in a perfect world. It could end up working the way, like, for example, the overlap between like big screen Marvel and Netflix Marvel, you know, like where you have like Jessica Jones making these kind of like quips under her breath about like about the incident yeah yeah and you know or or the fact that like the way people feel about the superheroes is shaped by like like having lost people in like the battle of new york or whatever and that affects characters like jessica and luke cage and things like that as part of the world building but like she you know she's never gonna like hang out with iron man and captain america you know like like the worlds are distinct so i so i feel like there's there's certainly room for them to coexist but it does sort of feel like you know if their intention was to keep it like like you said, like there is sort of there's this bubble, like magic exists in Greendale and nowhere else. This is just a really puzzling choice to make it this season is where they're sort of debuting, you know, the the big bad. Um, and also, you know, and and in canon, like Sabrina's friends with all these characters. So there is crossover like in, you know, in the in comic canon, like she's one of the gang, you know. Yeah. Um, so but but then in, like it's sort of complicated by like, you know, they're. One is Netflix and one is CW. So I'm assuming they're different production companies and you're going to run into the same stuff that happens with Netflix Marvel versus big screen Marvel, which is there's like copyright things and stuff that you can't say and things like that, you know? So, um, so I don't know, but I, I do feel like I, I lean the direction that you're leaning where like, I just, it seems so unlikely that the big reveal at the end is going to be that actual magic exists. Like that just feels right. like really weird. Um, yeah. But I could see potentially like the overlap being like you're you're in a a world where enough people like believe that magic exists or can be convinced that magic exists or have heard rumors that elsewhere magic exists that that's a point of like psychological leverage, you know. But I I think it's much more likely that you know like, like the the explanations that we've gotten for like how the game came about, you know, like a lot of things that have sort of been introduced as being like mysterious and supernatural have already been explained, you know, like this game like appeared out of nowhere and it's set in Riverdale and that's so weird and feels kind of vaguely like magic and creepy. And then it turns out like, okay, it came from the comma and here's what it means. Here's the origin of it. You know, there's drugs in the drinks, like things like that. So things that, that seem like they had a kind of fantastical explanation are already sort of bit by bit being explained is like no a human person made a choice and did this thing consciously and kind of created this mystique you know like around it so i suspect the reveal is going to be like which person is playing these sort of elaborate psychological mind games and making everyone think that this is magic when it's actually not it would just be so weird if it was like the real is like the gargoyle king is like aunt hilda like you know like it would just be like it would be so weird right i mean if anything the gargoyle king would definitely be mad of satan well, right. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining all of that to us. Yeah, seriously. Like, well, you're very welcome. A lot more makes sense. I find I'm a little bit more confused than I was before, but I think that's a good thing. I had that effect on people. Yes, you do. <laughs> but that's why um, we love you. But yeah, I mean, I think like there are like it's like there's there's a lot of stuff where it's like you know there are, there are interesting potential places where there's parallels, but also like I mean, it could literally be as simple as they were like you know. It's a game and there's wizards and swords and we're going to just sort of make it up as we go. Like, like I'm, 
it's entirely possible that we're wildly overthinking this. But right. there are some places where I'm kind of like, okay, like it, I feel like it, like thought went into matching up which character is playing which archetype, like things like that, you know? Yeah. Claire, do you want to tell everybody where they can find you on the internet again, please? Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at, at Kane and Griffin, where I tweet about television and chips and screaming about things. And I also am the co-host of the MetaStation podcast, Recapping the 100. We are at MetaStation100 on Twitter and on Tumblr and SoundCloud and such like also things like that. And if you want to follow me on Twitter at my account, which is almost 100% just screaming about politics, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't want to, that is at Claire Willett, C-L-A-I-R-E-W-I-L-L-E-T-T. And if you follow her Kane and Griffin account, you might see her achieve her bi-yearly uh, viral meme status. Oh, God. Yes. My my claim to fame is every every six to eight months, my mentions blow up over something really stupid. <laughs> yep. Good times. That about sums it up. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Our music is Terminal by Good News Tunes. Uh, if you would like to review us on iTunes, we would love that. And also, uh, we have a survey. It's kind of just perpetually open. It'll be in the description. And it's like some things that you like about the podcast, some things that um, we could work on. Yeah, we'd just love to hear from you. If you're a fan of Chaos, we are covering that show too. We're kind of taking that slow and steady. But uh, since the two, Riverdale and Chaos, are interconnected, we kind of have to. Yeah. If you're a fan of The 100, obviously we are. We just went to a, a convention about it. A convention about it. Had our um, dreams come true. It's chill. We also talk about that one. And uh, we talked about season four and season five and the upcoming season six, which comes out on April, April 30th. 30th. Yeah. Very exciting. If you're a fan of Lost, we like to talk about that show too. Uh, Robin especially does. So um, we have covered season one. We're in the middle of season two. So come join us. Yeah. Uh, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, great news. That podcast is beginning. We finally have an iTunes link for mm-hmm. that. So um, if you search on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you like to, except for Stitcher, which I, because I need to, I think I need to like apply to Stitcher. I don't even know what Stitcher is. Oh, it's just a podcast app. Oh, all right. Um, you could probably just search the aficionados and Stranger Things will be there. And so you can subscribe to that. Uh, because that's coming. Yeah. Um, you can follow the Fictionados on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, Redbubble, YouTube, but mostly Twitter. Yeah, and come to Sweet RiverCon in November. We'd love to see you. We're all gonna be there. Yeah. Uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash theafficionados. If you like what we do here, please consider donating because it's expensive. Five podcasts. Getting no. crazy. <laughs> You can follow me on Twitter at Britannia, which is B-R-I-T-T-A-N-I-A with an underscore at the end. And you can follow me personally at Robin E. Jeffrey. That's R-O-B-Y-N-E-J-E-F-F-R-U-I pretty much everywhere. And uh, thank you for joining us, Claire. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Sorry that we totaled your voice even further. Like, I could hear it. I I know. I was like, I want to keep talking, but I'm running out of steam. I'm getting more and more croaky. (laughs) I'm so sorry. That's okay. It's not your fault. Um, the next episode, which comes out like <laughs> this week, this week is called uh, "No Exit." It's episode three hundred nine. Um, "No Exit," also known as "Sinners Go to Hell," was a nineteen sixty two American Argentine dramatic film adaptation of this nineteen forty four existentialist French play. Um, oh, a siren! But uh, basically, here's what happens in the play. Uh, the play begins with three characters who find themselves waiting in a mysterious room. It is a depiction of the afterlife in which three deceased characters are punished by being locked into a room together for eternity. So the good place. Um, <laughs> it's the source of... I've been in this play. Ooh! Well, oh my god, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah, it was a long time ago. We did we did scenes from it when I was in high school. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it's the like that really that famous line people quote all the time, that hell is other people. 
which Jughead has literally said on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's from yeah uh, Jean Paul Sartre was a French existentialist playwright. He was in this sort of like um like not really marriage but like long 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 relationship with the playwright and novelist Simone de Beauvoir um in like in you know in Paris in the 1940s like after World War II and and yeah and and he and this was his sort of like big kind of um it's his most I think like best known work. But yeah, the sort of premise of it is actually it's hilariously it's like it's actually very similar to the Good Place. It's sort of this idea that like <laughs> these three people have been like selected. I think it's two two women and a man like an older woman and a younger woman and a man and they're like they've sort of been like chosen to kind of like get on each other's nerves for essentially like all of eternity but you don't you don't really find out kind of until the end of the play really like a sort of a slow reveal that that's where they are you're just kind of like why are these people in this room like the good place yes and then they and they sort of slowly begin to realize like that they can't leave um there was a theater company in portland they did a production of it on a triangular stage that tilted like it was it was sort of like had kind of like a centrifuge in the middle um and kind of tilted off balance and so each like when they moved around like the whole stage kind of like like fluctuated and like um like sort of tilted like in imbal- like you you could they could never like the stage was never like at a flat straight angle and, and so you sort of feel like you're like off the whole time it's very right. cool i i it makes me wonder like who's going to be trapped in a room you know psychologically torturing each right. other in this next episode. I know. Well, sometimes that the titles of the episodes, if you like look at what they're referencing, it's like makes so much sense. And other times it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, so just the title. <laughs> You're just like, you just like those words. Yeah. So I wonder if no exit will oh, you know, be about the outbreak and the, the quarantine. Yeah. It could be the yeah, the quarantine. Yeah. 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 So there's an episode of the, of the West Wing that has, um, that I, I wonder, it'd be cool to kind of, if that if this is where they're going with it, where there's a, there's like a security breach, like a sort of sudden security shutdown where it's like, no, one can leave the room that they're in and and it's kind of a bottle episode where like all the characters are trapped like whatever office you were in when the they sort of slammed the alarm button you had to stay there for like the rest of like like you know like 10 or 12 hours and it's everyone's like in these weird combinations where you're sort of like i just literally popped into this guy's office that i don't really get along with just like give him a piece of paper but i was stuck here right like when they dropped the thing and so the whole episode is sort of like the conversations and like weird relationship dynamics that come about because everyone is sort of trapped in these spaces that they can't escape and it sort of all of this kind of brings to the surface so it'd be cool if that like if they actually use the outbreak to give us moments like that mm-hmm. of like people being trapped together and how that forces sort of relationship stuff i don't maybe that's expecting too much of this show no, but that's cool I like that it. would be neat all right i love it thank you to everyone to sam who isn't here but thank you to her too okay love you bye love you love you bye, love you, love you, bye.